The following audio is from First Baptist Pelham in Pelham, Alabama. More information about First Baptist Pelham is available at fbcpelham.org. Christmas season and the multiple ways we have of using music and we thank our handbell choir and the flautist and the vocalist all who've done a wonderful job this morning. Before we look in our Bible it's a passage that I want to look at with you this morning let me mention two things to you. One is to express a word of gratitude to many of you who have already made your gift to the Lotta Moon Christmas offering through an envelope like I hold in my hand. I've made my gift. Brother Mike has made his gift. Our deacons, I hope, have made their gift. They made commitments a long time ago that they were going to be supportive of this. And many of you have made your gifts. We are already now two-thirds of the way through the goal of $52,000. We need the final $18,000. I'd like to see we give it today. Wednesday night when we come together for that special service that you heard about a moment ago, I hope we can offer our birthday gift to Jesus as a gift that's over the top and we say to God be the glory. So today is many times we wait till the last minute. Now, we are at the last minute. We're not going to take up an offering tomorrow. The church office is going to be closed on Tuesday and Wednesday. And we'll be here to celebrate. So uh, the words of Jesus, what you do, do quickly. So do it today, and we will be most grateful. And all together, we can do together what we could not do apart. The second thing is to remind you that next Sunday morning, we will not convene at 8 o'clock, and we will not convene at 9.15. If you get here at 9.15, you're going to be early and have to wait on us. 10 o'clock one worship hour, but now let me say to you, some of you folks like hymns, some of you folks like contemporary music, some of you folks like both, some of you folks don't like any of it. Now we're going to try to please everybody next Sunday. We're going to have something that will be a blended service. We have a special vocalist that will be here that I hope you can hear, and if he does as well as Truman did this morning, the next Sunday we may ask the two of them to sing together and get started off in the new year in a wonderful way. But December the 28th, one service, 10 o'clock, we'll all come together and remember again, during Christmas, some people will attend church at your invitation that will not come any other time. So don't take for granted that they know about it. Invite them to our Christmas Eve service on Wednesday night and again next Sunday. Now, if you will, open your Bible with me to the passages listed there in your bulletin to begin with to Luke chapter 1. And though we're going to look primarily at verse 38, I want you to begin reading with me, if you will, in verse 26 of Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month, God sent an angel, Gabriel, to Nazareth, that is the hometown of Joseph and Mary, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged or engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, whom we looked at last Sunday. 
a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings to you, you're highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. And you're to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Look at verse 34. How? How will this be, Mary asked, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Look at verse 37. For nothing is impossible with God. And now the key verse, verse 38. King James says, Mary said, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. That's all right if you know what that means, but the word handmaid in the King James is the feminine form of the word for servant. And I like the NIV translation for it says that she says, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. Be it to you as you have said. And the angel left her. Mary basically passes off the scene as far as the biblical record is concerned. Except for one event <coughs> that we will look at next Sunday morning. <coughs> Excuse me when Jesus was 12 years of age and they showed up in the temple. Besides that, we know nothing about what went on in his family. Nothing has told us. Until you come to John chapter 2. And in John 2, you find his account of the launching of the public ministry of Jesus and the marriage feast of Cain of Galilee. And you remember the occasion. They're having a wedding reception, we would say. And it looks like Mary was one of the hosts, hostesses here. And they had an embarrassing situation for Middle Easterners, or anybody for that matter. They ran out of refreshments. And they come and tell her. And she turns to Jesus, and then she turns to the disciples, to the, I mean to the servants. And notice what she says in verse 5. She said to them very simply, Do whatever he tells you. And with that, she passes off the scene again. And we know nothing about her for three years. As far as we know, she was living there in Nazareth. Joseph has already passed off the scene. We don't know what happened to him. He may have died. The implication seems to be that he did. But we're not told. But Mary, too, is not on the scene for three years. And then, John 19, 25, she shows up again. This time, at the saddest day of her life. She, who had been told by the angel that as a virgin she was going to give birth to a child, the child was going to be the Son of God, and now she's at the foot of the cross and for six hours, she watches her own son 
nails in his hand and in his feet, blood trickling down to the ground below. She watches him die. A mother only could feel what she felt. She had felt him first in her womb, and now she sees him on the cross. The Bible says, John 19, 25, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. So she had been there when the angel announced, and here she is at the foot of the cross. And John is the only one who tells us about Mary being at the cross. Then she passes off the scene for several weeks. We don't know what happened during that time except that Jesus was three days later raised from the dead. I go back to the cross. Don't take anything away from what Mary went through there. We look at that story through the prism of the resurrection. She did not. It's way beyond, I can imagine, that Mary knew, oh, everything's going to end up all right. Nobody ever had died and been raised from the dead, and she had no reason whatever to believe it was going to happen here. Her world is crumbling in on her, and yet <coughs> she doesn't give up. <coughs> you find Mary, after the cross, <coughs> Jesus is raised from the dead. He appears. Then he ascends back to heaven. And he tells them, you gather together and wait, and you'll be endued with the power of the Holy Spirit. And Mary is a part of 120 people who gathered for a 10-day prayer meeting. And in Acts 1.14, she appears on the scene one last time. And the scripture says, they all join together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And you may want to write in the margin of your Bible, that's the last reference anywhere in the Scripture to the Virgin Mary. Acts 1.14, after then, we know nothing whatever about what happened to her. Altogether, there are only eight chapters in the Bible that tell us anything about this most misunderstood woman. We have read most of the biblical passages. Matthew 1 to 2, Luke 1 to 2, Mark 6, one verse there in verse 3, John 2, we talked about the marriage feast of Canaan, Galilee, John 19 at the cross, and here a few days before Pentecost in Acts chapter 1. When you read those chapters, you've read every single verse in the Bible that says anything about this most misunderstood woman. Now basically, as we look at the life of Mary, the mother of Jesus, there are two extremes the Christian church has taken to this. One extreme is those who make too much of her, and the other extreme is those who make too little of her. And either one seems to miss the point of the Bible. The one extreme of those who make too much of her would be our Roman Catholic friends who virtually venerate Mary. Sometimes you hear them praying to Mary. Sometimes you hear them praying through Mary. She is a prominent figure 
in Roman Catholic liturgy and Roman Catholic worship. Now, they can do whatever they do according to the dictates of their heart, but the Bible does not put her in that position. We'll look at some of those things in just a moment. But some people make too much of Mary. But falling off the other side of the horse seems to me to be just about as bad those of us who basically ignore her and pay no attention to her and give no sense of recognition for her. And that's what we hope to help stop this morning when we talk about this most misunderstood woman. Three things I want to fix in our mind quickly here. First of all, three historical problems we deal with as Christians in general and Baptists in particular in understanding Mary. And I'll give them to you in just a second. Secondly, three cultural customs that we have to keep in mind. I alluded to these last Sunday that we need to keep in mind if we're going to understand Mary. And then mainly three biblical principles, three biblical lessons you and I can learn here the Sunday before Christmas from the one who was closest to the first Christmas of anybody, the mother of Jesus. But to begin with, three historical problems. Throughout the history of the Christian church, you know that our Roman Catholic friends have promulgated certain doctrines and certain edicts that have to do with Mary <clears throat> that we do not agree with, but nonetheless, there are problems in dealing with Mary and us. We've got to sort through these to get to what the Bible says. The first of these came in 1546, what is called in history the Council of Trent, T-R-E-N-T, a church gathering where, <clears throat> after much discussion, it was declared the perpetual virginity of Mary. Now basically what that does, it contends that Mary gave birth to Jesus, never had any sexual relation with Joseph beyond that, later, and had no other children. That is, that it was Jesus and Jesus only, and so the perpetual virginity of Mary. Now, what you need to understand is, having children is not a sin. Amen? Now, you may sometimes think it might have been, but it wasn't. Now, what I'm saying to you is, the perpetual virginity of Mary doesn't make us appreciate her anymore because that's not what the Bible says. <clears throat> Though the edict said that she never gave birth to any other children. The Bible says, you can look it up when you get home, Mark chapter 6, verse 3, it mentions James and Joseph and John and uh, Simeon and sisters, plural. Now, if you've got four brothers and at least two sisters and Jesus, how many have you got? You say, I don't know. Seven. <laughs> and there may have been more. It just says sisters. It may have been three or four girls. We don't know. But mark the Bible now. Remember, our sole rule for faith and practice is the Bible. The Bible says that he, the family of Jesus included brothers and sisters. And so that's the reason. We don't agree with Roman Catholics on the perpetual virginity of Mary. If you're a Roman Catholic and you're here today, you have every right to believe anything you want to believe. But just remember, no Roman Catholic will say that's in the Bible because it's not in the Bible. The second problem occurred about 300 years later 
when in 1854, a pope by the name of Pius IX promulgated another church dogma. And this time he called it the Immaculate Conception of Mary. And many times when we Baptists here, Catholics talk about the Immaculate Conception, we think they're talking about the birth of Jesus. That's not what they're talking about. The Immaculate Conception is an edict in 1854 by the Pope that said that Mary was kept from original sin by a miraculous birth herself. That just as Jesus had a miraculous conception, Mary had the same thing. Now that's intriguing. Augustine was the first one who suggested this. And now by 1854, the Pope declares all Catholics would believe this, and they do. The only thing wrong with that is, it's not in the Bible. The Bible does not say anything at all about the Immaculate Conception of Mary. As far as we know, she was born in the normal, ordinary manner. Nothing wrong with that. She was saved like every one of us have been saved. And she went to heaven because of the grace of God and the forgiveness of sins by what her son did on the cross. But the Immaculate Conception, 1854. Then, if you were born in 1950 and, and, and before that, you can remember, as I can as a young teenage boy, <coughs> the first pope that I knew anything about was Pope Pius XI. And in 1950, he issued an edict and spoke ex cathedra. You know, that means out of the church. The infallibility of the pope doesn't mean he doesn't ever make a mistake. It just means when he speaks for the church, ex cathedra, he can't make a mistake. He's infallible. And he spoke ex cathedra, the only time that happened in the 20th century, 1950. And this edict from the church was what has been called the bodily assumption of Mary. And what that means in simple language, boys and girls, is that Mary didn't die in a normal, ordinary way, that she was bodily assumed back into heaven and never experienced physical death like most people do. Now that's intriguing, it's interesting, it's fascinating, but it's not in the Bible. And so we want to come back to what does the Bible say? And the Bible does not validate belief in any one of these three. And so we've got to work our way through that to get to the truth of what the Bible teaches us about Mary. So with those historical problems, at least hopefully in your mind and fixed there that you understand them, there were three cultural customs likewise of that day and time. I alluded to these last Sunday, but let's be sure, since one or two of you were not here last Sunday, and some of you have already forgotten what I said, let me say it one more time, just like parrots have to do, preachers have to do the same thing. Three cultural customs. In that day when Mary was announced by the angel Gabriel, you found favor with God and you're going to give birth to the Son of God. You and I must keep in our mind the culture of that day and time. In the process of getting married, there were three stages every couple went through. Step one was what they called engagement. Now, put out of your mind what we mean by engagement. Engagement for them was not that. In fact, the boy and girl oftentimes didn't even know anything about it. 
mom and daddy got together and selected somebody that would be for their son or for their daughter. Sometimes they had professional matchmakers that have what we'd probably call uh, psychologists. No computers, no way of matching people up. They did it. You say, well, that's a crazy thing. Why did they do that? Well, I'll tell you why. Devout Jews felt that marriage was so sacred, it ought not to be entered into flippantly. Thereby, they would make the choices. With one out of every two marriages today ending in divorce, I'm not sure they were wrong. Some of us might have made better decisions than our own children did. I don't know about that. I just know this. That's why they did it. So the mamas and daddies would select the mate for their son or daughter. Then the day came, as they got older, they could ratify that. That is, they could approve it. They could also disapprove it. Very seldom was that done. But they could approve it. And when they did, they entered into one of three words that's used to describe it. It's spousal, betrothal, or pledge. But it's the period that lasted obligatorily one year. The couple did everything together except live together as husband and wife. They had no sexual relation. They didn't sleep together, but they appeared together in public. They were referred to publicly as husband and wife. It was so binding that if one of them died during this time, the other one was referred to as a widow or a widower. If they divorced during this period of time or they separated, they had to have a right of divorcement. That's how obligatory it was. Now you say, why are you telling us all this, preacher? It was during that period that the angel comes to Mary. Parents have already selected Joseph for Mary and Mary for Joseph. They have now, we would say, become engaged. They said they were betrothed. And in the midst of that year, when they did everything except live together, an angel comes on the scene and says, you found favor with God. You're going to give birth to the Son of God. Mary asked a very logical question. How? Now, Mary knew where babies came from. She knew she had not had any sexual relation with a man, and she knew there never had been a child born like that. So she asked a very logical question, how? And the angel very simply says, oh, the Holy Ghost, the King James says, is going to come upon you, and you're going to give birth to the Son of God. Now, sometimes we read that story, and I hear Christians talk about it, and Mary said, oh, I didn't understand. I understand. I don't think it was that way at all. I can imagine when the angel said, the Holy Ghost is going to fall upon you. She said, the Holy who? And I'm going to have who? The Son of who? The Son of God? Who am I going to say was his daddy? What am I going to tell my daddy? What am I going to tell my fiance? I think all of these are logical questions that came for that little girl, teenage, older teenager probably, is mine. <coughs> when she is being dealt with by that angelic announcement, we just read through it and say, oh, there's nothing to it, you know. Happens every day. No, it never had happened before. Never has happened since then. So here's a young lady who is engaged but not married, 
has never had sexual relation with a man. She is called a virgin. And the angel says, you're going to give birth to the Son of God. Now watch it carefully. What you find here is that leading us into the things that I want you to take home with you today. Three biblical principles or lessons we can learn. Number one is her response to that angelic announcement. Mary said she had a question. We've already dealt with that. The angel gave her the answer that the Holy Ghost was going to come upon her. And now notice in verse 38 of Luke 1. Mary says, I am the Lord's servant. Whatever he says, I'll do. Here is an older teenage girl who's dealing with a situation she'd never dealt with before. Nobody in this room has ever dealt with it. And she's dealing with it. And she doesn't understand it. She doesn't have any scientific evidence. She doesn't have any knowledge that it's definitely going to come to pass. She just has the angel's word that the Lord's going to said that you're going to be the mother of the Son of God. And notice what she said. I am the Lord's servant. Whatever he says, I'll do. My dear friend, that's a lesson I need to learn over and over again, and you and I, you need to learn it. Initial submission, the way we begin our walk with God, is initially saying, Lord, I can't save myself. I'm dependent upon you, and whatever you say in the Bible is what I have to do to be saved. I will accept your word. And Mary does exactly that. Initial submission. But then, beyond that, you see the pattern in her life. Later, when you move over to John chapter 2, that initial submission evolves into continued obedience. Here they are in the midst of a celebration about a wedding. They run out of refreshments. They turn to her. She turns to Jesus. And in turn, she says to the servants, whatever he says, do it. Now here's a girl that earlier had been told by the angel, but now remember by this time, Jesus is 30 years of age. So 30 years have elapsed since she first said, I am the Lord's servant. Now 30 years later, she says to those servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Do whatever he says. And when those servants turned those water pots up, started pouring, water didn't come out, wine came out. The miracle had occurred. Now be careful here. I oftentimes run into people who tell me, God told me to do so and so. God gave me a revelation. God appeared to me and said so and so. Now, that may happen, and I don't want to be disrespectful of you, but I want to tell you, dear friend, you be dead sure what you say comes from God and not from a dose of indigestion. I know many people who go around saying, God told me to do it. Several years ago, a lady came up to me after church one Sunday. She was a doctor's wife. She said, our daughter's going to have a baby in about uh, next year, and said, that God told me it's going to be twins. What do you think about that? 
you know. Nobody ever asked me a question like that. So I hadn't really had time to think about it. I gave her the only honest answer I knew. I said, well, nine months from now, you'll know whether God did it or the devil. You know what? Nine months later, one baby came out. That later's never asked me that question again. <laughs> now, I don't know why she said some harebrained thing like that, but she's not the first or the last person to come up there. God told me, listen, I believe God can do that. I believe God comes in miraculous ways. I believe God can heal. I believe God tells us to do certain things. But when God tells me to do it, he authenticates it by his presence and his power. When God said that the angel, that she was going to get pregnant, she got pregnant. <coughs> when God said the Spirit of God is going to be the progenitor, it happened just like that. And when God tells you and me to do something, God will always authenticate it by his presence and power. And if he doesn't, you just understand it wasn't of God. Now, quickly, initial submission led to continued obedience. And there she is telling them, what to do. Whatever he says. They do it and the miracle occurs. Jesus launches his ministry. Still not understood. Still persecuted by the religious leaders of that day and time. Finally they instigate his murder. That's all you can call it. And you come to the cross. And the only biblical writer that tells us that the mother of Jesus was at the cross is John. He says in chapter 19, verse 25, there at the foot of the cross was his mother Mary. Now follow the sequence. Initial submission, I'm the Lord's servant. Continued obedience at Cana, whatever he says, do it. And now at the cross, she who had given birth to him is watching her own son die. Only a mother can understand the pain that would go through your heart if you see for six long hours. He's impaled on a cross, probably naked. We modestly put a loincloth on him. Probably was not so. And here he is, dying. And when he gives up the ghost to devise, her heart's broken. All these years she believed it was God told her to do it. This was God's son. Now listen to me carefully. We read that story through the prism of knowing three days later God raised him from the dead. I don't have any idea Mary believed that that day. It's being far-fetched to me, far more than I can stretch my mind, that somehow Mary just said, oh, oh, it's everything, everybody's going to be happy ever after. I don't believe she believed that at all. Her heart was broken. Her own son had died. The one she had been told was a son of God. It's easy to bail out. Say, so, well, I trusted him and he let me down. That's what we do sometimes. She didn't do that. Three days later, God vindicated her faith. He's raised from the dead. He appears. He ascends back to heaven and tells them to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. And the same mother who'd been at the cross is there a few days before Pentecost praying with 119 others for 10 days. Now notice carefully, she was doing the praying, she wasn't being prayed to. 
They were not praying through her or to her. She was praying with them for the power of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2, it came on the day of Pentecost. So what do you see? You see initial submission, I'm the Lord's servant. Continued obedience, do whatever he says. And final faithfulness at the cross and just a few hours before Pentecost, the mother of Jesus is praying. Now, in all of this, I think you see a thread that runs, and here it is. There are times in your life, just like there was in marriage, when life seems not to make sense. Nothing about what I've told you this morning makes, made sense to her at the time. And there are times in your life, you may be struggling with cancer today. You may be struggling with a troubled marriage. You may be struggling with financial resources. You may be struggling with, this, with depression during the holidays when everybody seems to be so happy and you're so sad because it's the first holiday without your husband or your wife or your son or your daughter. And that's understandable. And we need to be sympathetic at times like this. But also, remember, the fact that life doesn't make sense today doesn't mean it will not ever make sense. It didn't make sense to Mary that he's dying on the cross, 33 years of age, dying ignominiously. It didn't make sense. And yet, three days later, it began to make sense. And then the power of the Holy Spirit comes. I promise you, dear friend, what you and I see here. God is always faithful. He will be true to his word. He was to Mary, and he will to you. Just keep on believing. God is still alive and well on planet Earth. Let's bow together for just a moment. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, as you grapple in your own mind and heart with God's will for your life, Here's a lady who went through a lot of soul searching. You can understand that. She didn't understand a lot of what was going on. Life didn't make sense to her. And it may not to you today. Don't get angry at God. Don't turn your back on God. Don't walk out on God. Mary didn't. She set a good example for us. Initial submission. Continued obedience. Final faithfulness. That's what God's looking for. If you're here today and you have never, ever for certain trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, and you know this Christmas 2014, if you died, you'd go to heaven. If you don't know that, right where you're sitting, you can pray not to Mary, but to God through Jesus Christ. And say, dear Lord, forgive me of my sins. Come into my heart. Save me and help me to live for you. If you're already a Christian, right here, Sunday before Christmas will be a wonderful time to say, we want to be a part of First Baptist Church Pelham. We'll meet you right here at the front. Heavenly Father, for your word, we thank you. For your Holy Spirit that helps us understand it, we thank you. And for this young peasant girl that has been so misunderstood,
thank you that we see evidences of her faith and your faithfulness. May we practice that in our lives. And for those who need to make decisions today, lead them by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand together with us? And as we stand, the staff will be right here at the front to welcome you as you come. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more information about First Baptist Pelham and other free resources like this one, log on to fbcpelham.org.